Welcome to the Alchemy of Success podcast. I'm Vince Fusco. In the last 15 years, I've done everything from stagehand to award-winning director, husband and father of two, creative marketing expert, and professional growth and success coach. I specialize in helping people find their purpose, reach their goals, and realize their dreams, while building their confidence and self-love to live a life at their full potential. This podcast is dedicated to the exploration of the human experience, the drivers of, and the physical, mental, and spiritual metrics we measure success by. From personal life stories to inspiring tales from special guests, we'll be sharing our journeys of success and what it is to us. My hope is that this show will serve as a source of personal inspiration to spark your curiosity and ignite your mind, body, and spirit to your own brilliance. So you too can thrive in finding your own alchemy of success. Well, let's just get into it. Everyone, welcome to another episode of the Alchemy of Success. I'm Vince Fusco. I'm glad you're here. Today, I am um, joined by an educator, I think is one of the best titles that he wears as a, a very proud badge. He's an educator um, with over 20 years experience teaching drama in secondary schools. He's been a deputy principal and has worked intensely in the areas of student engagement and well-being, as well as curriculum leader and is currently head of drama at Wilderness School, an independent school for girls in Adelaide. As a creative, this is how we know each other. As a creative, he is an actor and director and was nominated for Best Male Performance at the ATG Curtain Call Awards in 2006 for his performance in Carol Churchill's Cloud Nine. Creativity is his biggest motivator, whether that be in theatre, in the kitchen or in writing. Following a near-fatal brain injury in 2018, Aldo used his recovery time to rediscover his passions for cooking and food, which saw him starting a blog and sharing food stories online through his Instagram, Aldo in Cucina. He also rediscovered a love for reading and stories, which has actually inspired him to start writing his own stories, including a brand new manuscript for a young adult fiction novel. If he could be anything in the world, it would be a storyteller. As a brain injury survivor, he's still learning about what it means to make every day count, but is just glad that he's here to tell the story. As am I, Aldo. Welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Vinny. It's been way too long between drinks and chats, I can tell you. Yeah. way too long brother <laughs> it's that's yeah. an understatement and I I am um, we were just catching up very quickly but I always love when you I see everything on socials following all of your handles Aldo does things Aldo in Cucina Aldo story and I love when I see what's going on in your life because you you have and even you can hear it there like it's you've got such a intense nine to five job as a of a very high level educator, you know, head of drama at the moment, as well as previous roles, principal roles that comes with a lot of different things, but you are the way that we met a creative. Um, yeah. And, and, and you're right. It's been way too long between drinks. Let's take it back. Aldo, <laughs> how do we know each other? Well, uh, we did a little short film called props. Um, I, pl- I played a prop. I played various props in the film Props. Um, and, yeah, I know it goes back a long way. It goes back. Um, and I was I, think I was still working I was still working at Loretto at the time and I've been out of Loretto for at least, oh, man, maybe 13, 14 years. So it's been, it's been longer. We thought it was about 10 years. It's been longer than that. That's crazy. Um, that no, you're right. That. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then um, I guess, yeah, we... 
sort of bumped into each other around the traps. You were doing stuff at the show and I met you um, again when you were uh, working at the show um, mm-hmm. through our mutual friend, Anita. Um, and um, and then we were going to do this wonderful play. Finally, we had the opportunity Finally. to work with each other. And, um, and that wasn't allowed to happen thanks to the universe. And well, yeah. That, you know, <laughs> well, we're going to get to that uh, universal moment for you. Um, but yeah, wow! I can't believe it's been that long. It must be getting close to yeah. like fifteen years then that we've we've yeah. known each other. Now, absolutely, um, you have always been one of the most brilliant and beautiful people to engage with, in my experience, for so many different reasons. Um, and I guess when we first met, like you said, it was a it was a short film called Props. Now this goes way back to gin and vodka production days. Yeah, when. Javina D'Angelo, I should really get Gigi on the show to talk about her work. Um, and I had our production house, GMB Productions, and we were trying to just make films for films and scripts that we liked for like uh, festivals and such. And uh, and this film, Props, the the premise was uh, it was like a support group, wasn't it, for a support group for prop yeah. actors, so people who <laughs> would play like the kettle, for example, or uh, a reclining chair, or you know, do you recall? Do you remember what your prop was? <laughs> I can't remember. I think it was an occasional table. Um, occasional I think table. it was an occasional table. Yeah. I've always had a bit of a thing for occasional tables, I think, since then. Because um, <laughs> I wonder, it's occasionally a table. What is it the rest of the time? Totally. That's what I want to know. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's yeah. not about usage necessarily. <laughs> it's about what it is. Okay. I like yeah, it. Yeah. It, like it. It, it was a journey inward as an actor to try and find the essence of the occasional <laughs> table. <laughs> but, well, and so that was our first encounter and and... Just watching you work and create these this character for the film was was a real joy to watch. And and so at the time I was um, working as a producer. Then after that we I saw you in Cloud Nine, mesmerizing, um, again oh, and nominated there for Best Male at the ATG Curtain Call Awards as well. Tell me a little bit about where your artistic career started, or is it something that you've always just been? Tell us a little bit about you. Where did this uh, journey start? I reckon if you asked my mum, she'd say that uh, it's always just been, like I've always just had creativity and performance and story and all that kind of stuff um, from the youngest age. And I actually remember um, as a kid, I would drive my cousins absolutely crazy. My grandparents had um, a shed, a big shed at the back, and it still had lots of bits and pieces in boxes from when our parents were still living at home. And these boxes of curtains and whatever fabric, whatever I could find in there, they weren't just old bits of curtain and fabric. They were props and costumes and I would envision this entire performance in my head. So it would be every Christmas or family gathering, I would lure all of my cousins into that shed and I would go through these boxes and I would force them to be in my shows and we'd perform wow. these shows to our families and, my, you know, one of my cousins would always be in tears because she didn't want to do it. I was forcing her to do it. There's always drama. A ruthless you know, director from a young drama. age. Correct, correct. And I probably would have been like you know, nine, ten years old doing this. Um, interestingly, my creative um, stuff that I, that I really um, loved when I was younger was music. I was more of a musician. Um, and I still play music and, um, you know, write my own songs every now and again, that kind of stuff. But um, it was when I was in year, I think I was in year seven, and my year seven teacher, um, we did this unit on a thing called drama. 
that I didn't hadn't really heard of before. Like, what the hell is that? And it was, oh, I get to play with a script and be a character and perform this whole other thing. And I was obsessed from that moment. Remember what it was? Remember what the play was? Oh, God, I wish I could remember. I have no idea. But it was just, you know, let's just do some drama in school. I had, um, yeah, a a really cool teacher who did that kind of stuff. And, I, you know, clearly I'd done role plays and things before, but I never really understood it in terms of drama. And that was it. Um, And I remember we were going around uh, looking at high schools, like which high school was I going to go to? And um, we went to all these different school open days and stuff. And um, I went to a lot of my friends were going to Gleeson College uh, or Golden Grove High in that area. And we went to the Gleeson open day and we walked into this room and there was a drama teacher there. And you know this lady. You know her. This is Anita. Anita Valtudas. Anita Valtudas, of course. Yeah. And um, she was the drama teacher and she was running this workshop in this room and there was participation so you could get involved in it and whatever. I'm like, yeah, cool, I'll be involved in that. And I loved every second of it. And I walked out of that room and I pretty much said to mum and dad, I need to come here because I knew in my heart I, I needed to be taught by that woman by her, yeah. she was inspiring to me mm-hmm. and and so I did I went to Gleason and um it annoyed me like my first two years I didn't never had Anita as my drama teacher I had these other drama teachers were fine <laughs> but it wasn't the one that I wanted yeah um and um but it didn't matter I did Rocker Stedford's with her in eight and nine and then finally I had her for home class and English and drama in year 10 and that was it um and we've firm friends to this day like she's my big inspiration and the reason why I became a drama teacher and and why I love what I do in drama so much and and my passion for the theatre really came from from her as a guide so hi Anita I know you're listening (laughs) yeah hi Anita it's and and again she's it's great she is on the uh what I call my hit list of uh, of guests <laughs> to which you've been oh, struck with. Amazing. Um, but yes, our mutual friend, dear Anita Baltutis, who um, I met her, as you say, at the Royal Show um, comparing there. She was, this was way back, again, it must be like 15 years ago, which is crazy to say, but it was, um, she was there with Dr. Harry Cooper and, uh, and I think Ernie Dingo even made an appearance at some point, but um that's how we met. And she was like, I would love to speak to you about some theatre. And I was like, great, let's talk about theatre. And then we never had the opportunity to actually work together, but we remained in great contact and communication and, and would share thoughts or, you know, ideas, which was always wonderful. And then it's not till years later in the in your story where we actually do get the opportunity to work together, the three of us, finally, um, a little bit later down the track in 2018. Um, but we'll get to that. So you go... <laughs> So you go to Gleason, you found, well, I guess your heart song in in drama and that moment. I guess, Aldo, when you were um, back then going through just growing up and figuring out who you are, what you like, where you're going um, academically, whatever, did you have an idea of like where you wanted to go outside of high school already? Like before drama hit you and you got that bug, did you have an idea was – of something else? Well, it's interesting. If I go back to um, the earliest that I can remember when you're sort of, you know, thinking as a little kid, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And um, I think a teacher was always part of that. I think there was always an element of the teacher in that. Um, 
I always had good relationships with my teachers and um, and really looked up to them and found them really inspiring. Um, and I even look at myself now, the kind of teacher that I am now, I can see elements of the teachers that I had, even from like primary school age, mm-hmm. that have influenced me in some way. And there's an element of that teacher um, in me as a teacher, which is a really lovely yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, and and I think I think you know when um, and it's it's really lovely now. Like you know, I'll get messages from from old scholars who might not have heard from you know in a long time, but something's happened and and they remember and they get in touch and say it was because of you that I'm this way or you know because you did mm-hmm. this. So it's it's this lovely thing that you have as a teacher. Absolutely, it's, it's really that relationship is at the core of what we do, um, yeah. and it's so genuine. So I think there was always an element of like. A teacher is what I, I would love to do. Um, and then sort of around year 10 was the age that I was thinking about, look, what's what's the career pathway going to be? Mm-hmm. And by that stage, I was, you know, I think I read most of Tennessee Williams' plays in year 10. It's um, so funny <laughs> that you say that because, and and I guess to reflect and and resonate with your your story there about connecting with the teachers, uh, you know, and vice versa with your students now and having that relationship. It is a really beautiful, um, I think, ability to transfer knowledge to someone that then empowers them to change their life. I think that that yeah. is such a miraculous thing when you think about it. Like that person has had influence on you and ignited something within you that then can change your entire pathway. Like I think that's a beautiful thing. And it's actually so reciprocal as well. Like yeah. Now, you said earlier that, um, you know, I've done a lot of work in pastoral care and student engagement and wellbeing. Um, that's so many of the kids that, you know, I've had an impact on, and I know I've had an impact on because they've told me, they've shown me that their parents yeah, yeah. make it known to you um, in some really critical ways that you've been there for a kid and been able to transform them. Um, but going through that process, they continue to transform you as well. Um, so as yeah. a teacher, you are just constantly, yeah. it is so reciprocal. Um, and that, and that's where the joy for teaching is. If, um, if I say, oh, look, why am I in it? Um, it's because it's that mutually transformative thing that we do um, Mm -hmm. between teacher and student, yeah. It's fantastic. It's really lovely. I agree. Like I I was exactly the same. I had a drama teacher in high school who was year nine and he was the one that I wanted because he just like everybody knew that if you were in his class, you were getting theatre. You were getting like you were getting the depth and the breadth and the width and everything of drama and arts and theatre and knowledge. And I remember the first time I was in his classroom and then going through to like year 10, 11, and there was a point where it was like you have to choose between performing arts and academics. I remember that like coming in just crying at lunchtime in the drama room to have him say, well, what do you want to do versus, you know, what does everybody else want you to do? And, and I was like, I want to I want to dance. I want to do art. I want to be, a, you know, I want to, I want to perform. And I remember him being like, well, that's what you will do. Like, well, that's up to you. Like, but you have to have, you have to talk about it. And it was Tennessee Williams as well that he introduced me to. And that's why I say it's so funny that you say Tennessee Williams, you've read that whole catalogue and, and it's really quite impactful. And like, even just the whole idea of what we're discussing, like you said, that transformative process that we have with teachers and students reflecting on Joanne's episode, which was, yeah. you know, be nice to your teachers, like be, be nice to your teachers because you know, when you do get an incredible teacher who loves what they do as well, like in your case, Anita, um, it is, it's a big moment. And sometimes I don't think we realise that until years down no. the track. 
So, so true. So true. But yeah, so the, I kind of remember in year 10 coming home and saying to mum and dad, oh, yeah, I kind of, I want to, you know, go to drama school and I want to act and direct and do those sorts of things. That's what my passion is. And I think there was an element of the, um, the European parent, especially, who would go, ah, so where's the career in that? Um, that's a bit of a dead-end pathway, was the sort of subtext. And, yeah. um, you know, maybe you want to think about having a backup. It was always about having always a backup. Always a backup, yeah. Always a backup. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and so I actually, um, at the end of year 12, I went to uni, um, went to Adelaide Uni, and got into an arts degree. I'd actually applied for law. Um, so law was... Legal studies, Italian and drama were my three most favourite subjects and uh, in year 12 especially. And I loved legal studies. I loved learning about, you know, law and change and all those sorts of things. And I think there's an in- inherent sort of element of the justice seeker um, in me as well. Um, and so there was definitely that. And I was particularly interested in family law. Um, and for me, I guess family law, I looked at it and said, well, there's an opportunity to sort of protect kids, especially and make sure that they're cared for in bad situations and that sort of thing. Um, so I got into Adelaide Uni, um, into an arts degree. I didn't get into law straight out and I was a bit devastated about that, but I thought that's okay. They've got, you know, drama subjects and, um, I can do Italian. So I did my Italian there and I get to uni for O week and it, back in the days when you have to line up in these lines that went on forever. Do you remember none of it was online? O-week? Oh my it, God. It was like, dreadful. <laughs> dreadful. Yeah. Uh, see, I have a very different perspective. I just remember O week being one of the best weeks of my life. Like, oh, you really? Was, <laughs> I just, it was just like, I remember the feeling of just putting the, the accelerator to the floor and going like every event, everything. Like I don't think I've ever drunk that much in my life. Except for <laughs> O week, but O week. That was probably a little bit more when I when I was in Canberra more than Adelaide Uni, right. um, and I, I was in the arts program then um, by that point. But yeah, so I um, I did the first year, but I, I get to O week and there's a little snippet, little piece of paper inside the um, the subject catalogue, and it said um, that you know the the drama courses have been cut. Um, and so we won't be taking any admissions into those electives. And I was devastated. Yeah. And, you know, we lived in lived in uh, Golden Grove and um, the prospect of going to Flinders back in, back at that time, I was like, oh, my God, we need to take like 7,000 buses. It's going to be yeah. four years to get there. I'm going to have to pack a lunch. Pack a lunch, In correct. order to get there, yeah. Um, and um, so, yes, yeah, so I'd, I'd gotten into the one at Adelaide and thought, you know, I'll do those courses there and I wasn't able to. Um, and so that was a bit crushing and um, I ended up picking up a lot of the um, uh, politics-based courses, which mm-hmm. were interesting too. And the arts the arts degree was sort of, you know, it was that choose-your-own-adventure and if you're not still 100% sure of what you want to do, there's an opportunity here for you just to refine your skills in areas that you love. And I look at the stuff that I'm doing now and it's analysis and writing and communication and all of those sorts of things are in there. Um, and they were the skills that I was I was developing. Anyway, I decided that I was going to try again for law the following year, and I got into law the following year. And it was great. Um, yeah, there was a very there was one very drunken law ball um, that I remember uh, going to. That was probably the highlight of my drinking days oh. at uni. Um, so there you go. That's my story. Um, and I. 
Yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I was also going through a time then when I was really coming to terms with my sexuality and um, and making sense of that, and particularly in a, um, a Catholic European upbringing. Um, but it was also the 90s, and it's a very different landscape now um, than it was back then. And, um, and it was hard. During that time, um, I'm, I got into, yes, yeah, so I got into law that year, and I actually met um, my best friend um, online in a chat room. And um, I'd had a one attempt at trying to come out and it didn't go very well. Um, and I was in this sort of space of I feel like I need my own space and I need to try and just need to get away for a little bit and work out myself just yeah. on my own. Um, and I had every intention of um, I was looking at Monash Uni in Melbourne and I thought, oh, that's a nice, you know, I can jump on the train and um, be there and back overnight kind of thing. Um, but I happened to meet my best friend online um, in a chat room and he was studying law in Canberra. And um, we basically formed this friendship, which was, it was a, I don't know if you remember ICQ, it was kind of pre-MSN Messenger back in the day. Yeah, but, see, I think I'm, I'm you know, in, I came in on the MSN train. Yes, you did. <laughs> um, but I... <laughs> We were we were literally like I'd come home from uni and he'd come home from uni, um, and we would have our ICQ um, yeah. chat open, and we would just be didn't matter what we were doing, we were just always there for each other and chatting about everything, and we'd be up until two or three o'clock in the morning, like every single night. And this is all pre um, like pre video phone video chat as well. Pre so this, yeah. Just... Do you know what I? Yeah, I actually so I'd, I'd made the decision I was going to. To move away. Had you and seen him? My at plan all? was like, had you no, not, not even, even a visual, a not even a photograph. No. So the funny wow. thing was, I, my intention was, I'm going to go for six months, and I'm going to do cross institutional study, and I can get it accredited back to, um, you know, to Adelaide Uni. I thought, well, why am I going to go to Melbourne? Like, I actually know somebody in Canberra, yeah, and there's a great law school there. I can go over there. Um, let's make that happen. And so I did and um, applied for that and um, made that happen. It was literally like I reckon the week before um, I left Adelaide to go to Canberra that we swapped photographs and we actually spoke on the phone for the first time. And, yeah, it was a huge gamble. So how, long, a huge gamble. So how long was it purely just a text ICQ messenger. Like a chat. I reckon probably would have started in maybe March or April of the same year. And we're now talking, it was almost a year. It was almost a year. Wow. Before you even just picked yeah. up the phone. Yeah. It, it would never, it never occurred to us, you know, like I, I don't even think yeah. I had a mobile phone at that point. Well, no, definitely not. I don't that we were texting or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. So the 5110 um, wasn't out yet. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, I found myself um on a plane going to meet a friend who was by all intents he was the closest person I had in my life um because we could talk to each other about everything and we were both going through very similar things um in terms of sort of understanding ourselves and mm -hmm. we had nobody else to talk to and and maybe there was this an element of okay we're we're online and we're on in you know we don't really know each other kind of thing and we can actually be a little bit more honest and vulnerable mm -hmm. about stuff. But um, 
it would just be, you know, I remember being at uni during the day and it's like, oh, God, I can't, I've got to tell Phil about this. Oh, my God, yeah, you know, I yeah. need to talk to Phil about it. And I'd go in and email him through the day or whatever it might be. And there was always this text and, like, chats yeah. and emails and stuff flying backwards and forwards between the states. And, yeah, and, um, yeah, it, it was, I, I remember arriving in Canberra and he picked me up from the airport and it was just like, this is this is the other part of myself that I've been looking for. I didn't know where he was, and here he is, um, and still is like my bestest friend in the whole whole world. Wow, um, that's amazing! Yeah, yeah. And mm. so you you said that you had only attempted to come out once before, and it didn't go well. So you had no. so obviously you had confided in Phil, and that was part of this relationship, like you said, that was so. Um, I guess supportive for the two of you, and and was he going through a similar thing as you mentioned? So you both yeah, confided, confided in one another, and and obviously yeah. had created a space where you could be completely open and honest and authentic with yourselves and how you're feeling and everything like that. How did that yeah. then affect, I guess, your day to day at home or when you went over there? Like when you came back, did you come back and was how did that help you? I guess on your journey of of acceptance for yourself. Or did you always know um, that you were gay? Can I ask that? Can I ask that question? Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> um, I think on some level, um, I think on some level, every everybody knows what their sexuality is, um, because you feel that attraction from a young age. We talked about Cloud Nine earlier, and one of the things I love about that play is this is very controversial relationship um, in the play, um, where a young child has feelings for another man. And you know it's it's a it's it's so controversial to look at. Churchill loves to plant those bombs, but um, it's a thing of well, when are you when are you young enough to know what your sexuality is? Do you only know your sexuality when you're a child because you're told that's what it is? That's right. Um, is it just a construct yeah. put in place and therefore the example is led and therefore which it makes total sense? And I think the time is so different. Um, like it's so different now. Like we just we're saying like this is nineties versus twenty. Yeah. Like what are we? That's thirty years ago. Which even that in itself um, is ridiculous. Detective. So again, <laughs> but I guess like I remember in the nineties when we, I would have been like ten. But I can even remember then like still a lot more prejudice, a lot more. Oh well, look, those two boys can't be holding hands. Do you know what I mean? Boys can't wear nail polish. Yeah. Boys can't do dance. Boys can't. No, like I remember that specific feeling myself and knowing that not necessarily speaking you know from a sexuality point of view but also then like you're saying what is put in front of you but there is you go well I can see the beauty and the attraction in that person but then you're told not to feel that way or even do you know what I mean like it, those those emotions yeah. are quashed and now I think the movements that have happened worldwide finally and just even just getting equality do you know what I mean? Like that in yeah. itself, now the world is so different. I think the kids are growing up today in a different environment where to see a same-sex couple is not unheard of. Do you know what I mean? Like we just didn't yeah. also have that represented on television. We didn't have it represented in the media. Oh, with the, so Absolutely. I guess, so I think that the world is such a different place now. So I think just to, I guess, give magnitude and context to the relationship that you and Phil are sharing in this little bubble, mm. the outside world wasn't as accepting even then. Uh, honestly, absolutely. I, I don't remember even at that age seeing any positive representations of 
same-sex couples or gay and lesbian people, any any diversity at all, really. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, even if you go back to like, um, you know, look at look at like the Wogboy culture and you know the Acropolis now and all of that kind of stuff. And talking about representations of of culture, it was always presented as a joke, and the gay yeah. characters were always presented as the campy, funny, the the, the jokey aside. Um, you know, I love Will and Grace. Even you look at at some of the the Jack McFarlane character. Um, yeah. You know, he's that he's that really sort of campy that stereotype, and it was groundbreaking at the time because it actually put you know gay characters on a primetime show. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't see positive representations of just the normal gay person who is happy and doesn't grow up to be old and alone. Or the representations were usually that they die of AIDS. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and we, we know now that, you know, AIDS is not a death sentence um, and it's great to see, you know, shows like Pose that are, are coming out that are, um, are really showing culture in a very different way um, and being realistic and reminding us that actually we've come this far, but there has been a whole struggle in the lead up to that. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. a young person who's trying to understand themselves and, and doesn't feel that they can, you know, safely and happily be out at home. Or you do try and come out, and your family don't understand, and um, it is quite quite tense. There, there, there was nothing really to grab onto, and um, you know, some of the stuff I'm doing at the moment with writing has been inspired by the fact that I found books um, that I wish that I had when I was that age that would have been supportive, um, not just to me, but to you know, my family or to other families and, and kids going through the same kind of thing. So it's wonderful that we're in a society now where we have that yeah. um, and we can contribute to that. But, no, there wasn't anything like that. And um, I I found when um, when I went to uni, when I went to Canberra um, for uni, um, Phil and I were just inseparable and I just felt like there was nothing that, there was nothing that I couldn't do because I knew that I had his support and he knew that I had, he knew that I, he had my support as well. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the, the essence of our friendship has always been, we would never judge each other. We're not in our friendship to judge each other. It's you do you. Yeah. And if you are about to fall over that cliff and I will pull you back, but I'm always going to be here for you when you fall. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's the the heart and soul of, of that friendship and it's what we all need it's what we all need absolutely so take us through uni you're doing law in canberra here he is yeah up and coming <laughs> and uh and then what, what happens from law because uh, i don't see you practicing law no 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 i absolutely hated it <laughs> i hated it so much it was it was interesting I found I found the you know learning about the law interesting, like I did when I was doing legal studies at school. Um, but I something sort of clicked in me, and I think it was maybe having that distance away and not feeling like I think there's an element you know that you're always going to want to do things that make your family proud. I think there's always that element. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I yeah, it, it was something I think I think. Mum, in particular, was really proud of the fact that you know, her son was going to be a lawyer, and I was the first, the first, you know, grandchild to be going to university, and um, 
you know, and and doing all of these things. I think you have migrant families as well, where it's like you're giving opportunities to your kids that that we didn't have, and so there's an element of of trying to honour that um, that experience as well. Um, and I, yeah, um, I just I just didn't love it, and I I remember doing my family law subject, thinking this was the thing that I really wanted to do. And I found myself less and less wanting to go to those classes. I still loved going to my Italian classes, um, but the law stuff just, it wasn't my passion. And I just kept thinking to myself, you are a creative and upbeat, like happy person. Doing this stuff day in, day out is not happy. A lot of this is dealing with other people's misery. Do you really want to be doing that for the rest of your life? And the answer to that question was no, I didn't. I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, and so I, it was the morning of my um, family law exam and I went, Aldo, you've got, you've got two choices the way I see this. You can go to your exam and do the thing and you're probably not going to do well at it because you haven't really engaged with it. Or yeah. you can go to the bar and work out what it is that you're going to do. And so I chose option B. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I was at the bar probably by about 11 o'clock in the morning. I'd had a few Malibu and Diet Cokes in my room at college, <laughs> as you did back in the day. Classic. And, um, yeah, and I I had heard, I don't even know how I came across it, but I'd heard that there was um, a theatre arts program uh, at ANU. And I'm like, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I pick some of those subjects and do it? And so I did. And... That was that was it for me. I kind of just I found myself going to uni every day, and I couldn't wait to get there. And was playing with you know different theatrical styles and reading all these amazing texts, and just it was. And I was working with people who were equally inspired, yeah. And uh, and we inspired each other. And uh, this is the best decision I have ever made I absolutely love it and I wasn't thinking about what am I going to be at the end of this Um, and in fact it wasn't until the week before was my last my last week of um, of uni doing that doing the um, undergrad course I was about to graduate from my arts degree and we had somebody come around um, from the postgrad office um, to say, okay, so um, you know, most of you here are doing arts degrees, and you're going to be graduating, you know, at the end of this uh, end of this term, and you might want to think, you know, what is the next thing um, out there for you? Like, what are you going to do with this now? And you know, have you considered postgrad courses? And I went, oh my god, I haven't considered any of this. Um, I'm qualified to be an out of work actor. Is basically how I looked at it. Brilliant, um, brilliant, amazing. And what am I going to do now? And um, that's when I fell back to the teaching thing and I went, oh, well, teaching was always in the background. What could I do with my career where I'm going to, to use all the skills and do the thing that I love every single day and how can I make a career out of that? And the obvious thing for me was drama teaching. Um, and, you know, and Anita and I were still friends and I was still um, sort of, you know, following her life through and went, yeah, that's, that's my inspiration. I, I want to do that. Um, and so I did. And my plan was always teaching is the 10-year plan. So by the end of that 10 years, I'll work out what it is that I want to do. And here I am over 20 years later, still teaching. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> But at least you had a plan, right? At least you had a plan. Yeah, right. Surely. That's it. 
Oh yeah. my goodness. So that's a massive pivot that you've had to make there, but the, the recognition of yourself to be sitting there going family law, it's what I really wanted. And yet nah, like that's that moment. And like you said to, when you say like, I'm a happy, I'm an upbeat person and this is sucking the life out of you, like just draining you. And then you go to the other side and you, you say exactly that, like you're, you're enjoying it. You're, you're around people who are as inspired as you, which I think is such a beautiful quote. How different, how important rather, would you say to not only your circumstance, but to anybody's circumstance, is it to have the ability to recognize your energy levels, your own personality, you know, where, where does it sit? Are you happy upbeat? Are you a mid row kind of happy to cruise kind of person? Are you a bit of a heavier personality that is happy to go along at, do you know what I mean? Like, but the ability for an individual to recognize this is actually where I'm naturally, I naturally vibrate to this level and I want to be operating like that. And then finding that calling to go, well, what else does that? And then, and then to be around people as inspired as you, how important are those two things? The thing, I guess my immediate response to that question is what I've, what I've counseled a lot of kids and their parents with over my years as a teacher. Um, you know, when we get to the point of picking subjects and as a drama teacher, you're forever justifying the validity of and the, the value of your subject at always, yeah, every always. arts teacher does. Um, so I, I think, you know, there are, I've seen situations where, you know, parents are dead set that they want their kids to do this particular thing and they want them to work in this particular way and you need to be that kind of person and blah, blah, blah. And I've seen kids follow pathways because their parents have pushed them into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I look at that and I go, well, actually, your, your kid's actually telling you who they are. And I think your kids are always going to tell you who they are. And when they tell and they show you who they are, I think you need to believe them um, and nurture that. Um because the difference between being happy and successful is you being true to yourself and being true to your passion. And we talk about success and, you know, and I've listened like through the past episodes of the podcast and what is really interesting justifies my, what I've always said to, to kids is that the measure of success is different for every person. Work out what your measure is. Yeah. Yeah. That is the exact Work out what your measure is and measure it that way. Exactly for that. Because I literally, I hear it from everybody I work with. I see it with students, clients, colleagues, family, friends, everybody. And I'm like, Mm. everybody's measuring this idea and killing themselves to chase success, but nobody really actually knows what, what it is. Because Correct. it's actually so different for every single person. So you can't yeah. even measure yours by somebody else's is the point. Uh, I was going to say that, um, you know, and, and coming from an education background as well, um, how much value is put on, you know, what ATAR you get and Correct. what university you go to, what course yeah. you do. And I've seen, you know, people in my own life, my, my husband hasn't, he didn't finish year 12. And he's got an amazing, you know, history of amazing career um, in government. And, and I look at what he's done and what, what he's achieved in his time. Uh-huh. And nobody, nobody would stop to ask. I said, what was your ATAR? And Correct. That, Correct. You know, that kind of thing. hundred um, percent. Yeah. It's, it, that means absolutely nothing. And, and he and I are very different, different energies. So you talk about energy. Um, we have quite different energies. I don't think the level of your energy 
has any bearing at all on on being successful if you're measuring success by your own standard and by yes. your own measure. Yes, yes. You know, you can be you can be you know a quiet introvert um, with a special skill in this particular little thing, but you'll be successful at that because you're going to work at your pace yeah. and you're only measuring you by you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so. I think yeah, that's a, a big roundabout way of answering that question, but it's it's a really interesting um, topic of conversation, and and I truly truly believe in the work I do with kids. It's it's really about measuring your success by you. You are your own measure. I love it. I think it's so valuable. That is golden. Do you see that? Good. Yes. The the other thing that you said that I I want to get literally put on my wall. Your kids like. When they're telling you, when they're showing you, they're actually showing you who they are. Now, this is something that I'm learning as a a young parent. I have two young boys. The two and a half year old is really coming into his own personality. And obviously, like it's going to continue changing for the next 18 plus years. But right now, like it's the first, I guess, challenge as a parent that we're experiencing where we're, we're already like, okay, well, this is how he wants to do things. It's different to what we have shown him. It's different to what we would do, but it still gets the job done. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, and, and, and it works and it's, and it's his way and he's so happy when he does it, you know, and this is not necessarily you know referring to one task in particular, but do you know what I'm saying? Like you can just see how he goes yeah. about his day, but it's the understanding of, well, this is him showing us when he's at his happiest doing his most natural functions. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like he's just going about yeah. his day and it's great. It'll be his interests. Um, yeah. You know, the things that he's interested in and um, and that, you know, you'll see those sparks of, you know, when he feels happy about something and when he, yeah. he feels like he's achieved something, you'll know what his interests are. And and I think, you know, I'm not a parent, but I, but I, I look at it and think if you, if you can observe what it is that your kids are showing you, mm-hmm. that they really, you know, inspires them from a young age and you nurture that rather than trying to mould them in what you think they should be or what you think your, I don't know, their grandparents would be proud of them being or whatever it might be, you need to be able to, to nurture them where they're at and, you know, and that's when you get the best out of them. Absolutely. I see that in the work I do with kids, yeah. I think, that goes for, I think that goes for everybody. I think like even not only kids, I think for a person, if you can nurture a person, another human being, genuinely and authentically and and if you can align with their, you know what I mean? Like you said, whatever it is they're doing, that can be such a powerful thing. It creates friendships. It creates moments. It changes people's psychology sometimes to actually find that. Um, and I think that to do it for a child would obviously then just, it allows their brain to experience that in itself at a younger age, which again is probably the same things that like it's generational trauma, isn't it? <laughs> it's the things that mm-hmm. we either didn't experience or our parents didn't experience and, and you know, they, they get passed down and only now do we really, I guess, have this huge understanding and we're still learning about psychology and the impacts of our behaviour and how we actually can oppress kids or, you know, teenagers from learning or whatever based on expectation from their outside source. That is a whole different discussion. We won't go down the rabbit <laughs> hole because, my God, we'll be here for days. We'll be there forever. Oh, my yeah. God. All right. So let's pull it back. We get to you, you do the arts degree. You go, oh, my God, I'm qualified for this. I need to go to teaching. You go to teaching. You have a, a phenomenal career. I guess I don't want to jump through your teaching career, but I guess if you had to pick some moments between that and 
continuing your arts career outside of school, what time frame is it between like that and then 2018, Alda, when we work together and and you go to the gym and, and you have your aneurysm? Is it an aneurysm? Mm. I keep calling it an aneurysm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I had an aneurysm, but the aneurysm burst um, yeah. and caused what's called a, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. We'll talk about that <laughs> when we get to it. <laughs> but um, um, we, yeah, so I guess... Um, I, yeah, did my teaching diploma. Um, always knew that if I was going to do teaching, it all had to be drama-related and it had to be seniors. Yeah. So that was where I was headed. And I also had um, Italian as my other area. So Italian was actually, I got my first teaching job um, before I actually finished my diploma, my last term. Um, I was already teaching um, here in Adelaide, so I'd come back to Adelaide for that. Yeah. Um, and um yeah i kind of I went permanent the following year um they renewed um my contract because there was a, a drama teacher who was taking a year off so i happened to be in the right place at the right time How and good. we need a drama teacher who can also take some italian classes bang there bang. i am yeah and um that sort of that was at um at loreto college here in adelaide and that was um it was a really cushy job, I think, to land into straight out of uni, but it was sort of that time when I really came to understand myself as um, as an educator and and really what that meant. Um, I'm a very different teacher now to what I was 20-odd years ago. Um, I took I took some time off. Um, my, my ex-partner and I had broken up and I decided I was going to go to um, Italy and sort of have this, I don't know, pre-midlife crisis maybe you maybe you get a couple of those in your life I don't know I like to call um, it the I'm gonna go pray, I call it the eat pray love tour um, I love that yeah because that's like I think so many people go through it myself included yeah. that's what I call it the eat pray love tour yeah. um I, where, I yeah you need so to get much, away I need a scene change so. and you, you just gotta go find <laughs> yourself in a in a fishbowl cocktail with a beautiful there scene I don't know that's it so, yeah, so um, I sort of hitched on the back of a, a school tour that was going to, to Italy and thought, well, if I pay my own way, um, I can still be on site like with the kids and, and help out when they go on different things. And I had the luxury of being able to jump on and off the, the bus that was taking them up to Venice and back down to Rome again. So that was cool. Sounds awful. Um, and I stayed on. Yeah, that no, was dreadful. <laughs> and I, I stayed on just a little bit longer and, spent all of my money and came home and I actually had taken a year off um, of teaching. So I'd been teaching for about maybe five or six years at that point. And I just needed, I just needed some time out to recalibrate. And um, so I'm back living in my parents' spare room um, and I've just come back from Italy and I've got zero dollars and a car that just was always breaking down and all this kind of thing. Anyway, I ended up, I uh, was like, oh, I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to go back just yet. I'm going to take my year off. And I got a job teaching <clears throat> for a year, the rest of that year, um, at Thomas More College. And that was a very different environment because the demographic was very different. Um, you had kids that were highly disengaged from learning um, and teachers that were probably the hardest working teachers I've ever worked with who were just so committed to keeping these kids at school and um, over that year uh, we heard some tragic news that um, a student who I had taught the previous year at Loreto had actually died 
And that was a bit of a calling for me. I'm like, I need to go back to Loretto and there's work that I can do in working with kids in a more pastoral care kind of sense. That was the pastoral care turning point for me. Um, And so I went back to Loretto and completely changed my uh, approach to my career and ended up as a year nine coordinator um, and um, did that for a few years. And a position came up uh, at Ironsbury and um, I thought that's just working in just year 12s and year year 11s and working with the senior kids and this will give me an opportunity to explore some other things. And I was already quite interested in food stuff um, back at that time and I had had an audition for the second season of MasterChef Um, and, yeah, I know, and I was supposed to... Yeah, I know. Well, I actually didn't get to go to the audition. So here's a great sacrifice that you make as a teacher where you put your kids first. Okay. I put in this application for um, MasterChef. It was like a 60-page online application. It was what? I don't. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, you don't know this part of MasterChef? No, I've never applied for MasterChef. It's the one show no. that I love to watch, but I, I, I'm bamboozled by food. Yeah. Um, Food knowledge, it, it kills me. Right, so you apply yeah, for right. this 60 page. So, yes, yeah, so apply for it. And and they're like, oh, we'll, we'll be in touch with you, you know, um, if you're successful before the auditions. Okay, cool. So um, I just went about my life and I'm like, I'm probably never going to get an audition. Well, they sent me an email. Um, it must have been on like a tu- the Tuesday maybe that um, we're calling you for an audition this weekend here in Adelaide. Um, and you need to be here at this time and this is what you need to do. And I'm like, great, because on Friday night I'm getting on a plane with my Year 12 students and taking them to Sydney for the weekend uh-huh. to see Kate Blanchett in A Streetcar Named uh-huh. Desire. Uh-huh. 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 That's like <laughs> Sophie's choice. That's, right? Absolutely. Uh, no, nah, do look, do? Okay, and well, I just went. <sighs> it's Kate Blanchett. Right. But I'd also it's a street kind of desire. This. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's like even I'm standing here thinking about that, and yeah, I don't even. I have to. I have. You have to go to Sydney, right? Correct. You but I'd to. also arranged this, this oh interstate excursion. Yeah, I yeah. was leading it. The parents had paid for it. Like, I'm not going to say, "Oh, Soz, uh, I've got a master chef audition because I need to make some gnocchi audition. tomorrow." Correct. Yeah. So, oh so it never happened. <laughs> and I think I've I think I've just been a frustrated um, chef all of this time, um, ever since then. Um, yeah, so I was kind of at that point of my career, going maybe there's some other things that that I can do. And Ainsbury was going to give me that flexibility to be able to explore some other things um, as, alongside of the teaching. And I think that's always been there for me, and I'm I'm back in that place now. Um, and over that time that I was there, I had a, an amazing mentor in my um, former principal there, uh, John Warren, who sadly left this plane um, some years ago now. And um, he was such an inspiring leader and um, a real visionary and a huge champion um, for good teachers and good leaders. And he saw that in me and really encouraged me. And, and next thing you know, I'm, you know, head of year 10 and then I'm associate principal with a, a student wellbeing and engagement um, banner. And then I'm the associate principal, um, and which is a fancy way of saying deputy. And um, 
And I was there and suddenly I've gone from teaching is my 10 year plan till I work out what it is that I want to do. I want to do creative stuff, but I'm a deputy principal in an executive leadership role. And I found myself getting increasingly frustrated in that role because I was doing things day in, day out that I didn't get into the job for. Mm-hmm. And probably the most rewarding part for me was where I did have, you know, kids with serious mental health or, um, you know, kids that were on suicide watch and stuff like that, that to come into their lives and to be able to inspire them. And, you know, I had a kid once um, call me his conscience. And this was quite a troubled kid who called me his conscience. And I still think about that now. And like, what an amazing thing and what a what huge a- responsibility that is as a teacher yeah, uh, or as a person to be considered somebody else's conscience. So I knew that I had, I knew that I had, you know, great skills in that and it was a relational side of thing. And even though I'm not working in that, that kind of zone anymore, as a drama teacher, we always get the kids who are vulnerable and feeling vulnerable and need someone to talk to and looking for a safe space. And the drama room is usually the that The drama place. room is it, isn't it? And it's funny, like, we are those kids. We say that, like, we are. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, we were those kids in that classroom ourselves. I think there's something about the artists who naturally are seekers as well. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, we, we feel things. Yeah, we want to know what it feels like to to be able to understand we want to you know what i mean it's there's so many layers to it but the drama room is that safe space and i think it's because it attracts that type of person as well like it attracts us to it naturally yeah yeah absolutely so you're at Hinesbury and like you said you've sort of gone from this 10 year to 20 year plan yeah what becomes then like you say you know you want to do more creatively you get that opportunity was it was it the play that we were working on that was the sort of like your first one back in or like had you? Yeah, it was. I, I'd taken some time out. I'd, um, you know, I'd, I'd did Cloud Nine. I went through a period where I'd, I was doing like four shows a year or something ridiculous between different um, companies around Adelaide. And um, I, by the time I got into the um, associate principal kind of role, it was, well, you don't really have time anymore to do the things that yeah, you Yeah, of love. course. Yeah, yeah. Um, your life is now sort of administration of the school and dealing with families and kids and and that's that and you just don't have time for anything else. And I just always, I always needed that creative outlet. I, I still do. And, um, yeah, I had taken some time out and I basically <laughs> said to Anita, I said, you and I both, we've always wanted to do these things. Why don't we just do a show together just for fun not with another theatre company, let's just do it ourselves and let's just work with people that we want to work with and just do it for fun and let's pitch it to the show, pitch it to the fringe and whatever and we're like, oh, yeah, okay, wouldn't it be great if we could get, you know, Amy would be amazing. I wonder if we could get Vinny. And then when you said yes, we were like, yes, oh, my God, I can't believe this is all falling into place. And as you know, we started um, blocking the show and, and rehearsing and, and our plan was actually to stage it at Ironsbury um, and use Ironsbury as a, a very central fringe venue um, for, for that show. And oh, it was just so much fun. And we picked God of Carnage, which is such a hilarious romp of a play. And we were literally like, what, two months into, not even two months into rehearsal, I think. It had only been a, yeah. a number of weeks, but we had done promo shots. We'd done the poster shots. Yep. like. We were having the time of our lives, the four of us in the cast, Amy, Kirsty, yourself and I, and then Anita directing, yeah. just 
not only I think to be in the room with, like you said, people we wanted to work with as well, like that it was so lovely to even be considered like, and then to be asked. And of course, like for me, it was a timing thing. It just worked out beautifully. I was like, Oh my God, I have an opening where I'm literally just going to be living my yeah. life. And that happens very rarely. So I should feel it. Which was why we were so astonished that it just fell into place with you. So well, scheduling yeah. was, it was per- like, it was just wonderful. And so like, not only that, but I hadn't done like a, just like a drama in, a little while either so I was also yeah. so keen just to even like we said be in the room with yourself and, and Anita as well and we were uh, all in that stage I think oh, too because like, I think everybody Amy, like Amy just yeah, had just her kid Kirsty was getting back into it again and Anita was like oh yeah I can do something that's outside of school and this would be fun so for all of us we kind of had this had this this is a passion energy, project like yeah but yeah. we all brought the best out in each other and I think we all just came with a games and it was honestly like the process even though it was only short-lived um it was one of the best rehearsal processes mm. that I've ever experienced because of the, the the five of us in that room like it was just magical and God of Carnage is a, yeah. a hell of a script for us to play with so um yeah. who knows when when we will hopefully one day remount it but oh, it'd be amazing who knows we'll see what happens in the mm. future um but yeah. we we're getting into this incredible season. Like I said, we're, we're, we're hitting our strides as actors. The show's coming together very nicely. We've done promo shots and we get a text message. Myself, Amy Kirsty, get this text message from Anita. And we get this text message just saying, Aldo's been in an accident. He's okay. I don't know much, but we're going to like no rehearsal tomorrow night. I'll keep you posted. And that was it. Like, it was just like, uh, I don't know. It was even just like as, as a friend, having known you for so long by this point, let alone to then get to be finally working with you. And then, you know what I mean? Like you, you become such a part of my regular routine as well. And this is now purely from my perspective, but it was like, it was just like having the rug pulled out from us without knowing anything, even more so because it was just such a, like, Anita didn't know anything and we can't ask anybody, but it was just a moment where I remember stopping and being like, oh my God, like, okay, what's, we just have to wait. Like we felt like we were holding our breath. And then we did get a follow-up message, which, Basically said, in short, okay, (laughs) he was at the gym, he had an accident, he's okay, I don't know the extent of it, but we will talk tomorrow. Please keep him in your prayers and thoughts and we will, like, I'll I'll keep you updated again. This again, like, that came through probably, like, I think it was late, late at night, close to the middle of the night, that one there. But again, like, I remember even saying to Joya, like, we'll be waiting for news, just waiting. But to, to finally hear, like, okay, you're okay, but he was at the gym. So then we're starting to think, like, oh, my God, has he dropped, like, a weight on his head? Has he, has he just broken his arm? Is he, like, what is going on? Let me put everybody out of their misery and put me out of my misery. <laughs> Aldo, can you share with us your story? What happened at the gym that put the brakes on not only our performance but really changed your life? Yeah. Well, um, First off, I I was never I was never the sporty kid, and the idea of exercise was like <laughs> why I love that. That's what you need. <laughs> yeah, and like even like running, like I don't run unless someone's chasing me, and even then, like you were going to the gym regularly. I remember you were you were going to the and gym I was yeah all the time checking in and checking so this, there. Yeah, this started off because um, Matt and I we had our commitment ceremony, and you do the thing where you're like, I need to get into my dress. Um, and, <laughs> um, shredding got, for the wedding. I need to my health kicking out. Shredding for the wedding. And I did. And I sort of had this sort of six month lead up. And then by the time I got to, um, the wedding, I was in this zone where I was, 
I'd lost all this weight and I was feeling like really good about myself, actually enjoying going to the gym, going to the gym and talking about different measures of success. For me, it was things like, oh, I can do push-ups like not on my knees or, you know, I can do the, the plyo lunges in the attack class or whatever. And so I'd made good friends um, through the gym as well. Um, but when I love something, I love it with my whole heart and then Everything. more. Yeah. And if I hate it, then I hate it with my whole heart and more. Um, but is that side absolutely, of you? there is, man. Yeah, there it is. All right. There it is. Um, so yeah, so um, I was just in this zone where I'm like, I've never been this person before, and I'm seeing all these results, and I'm so happy about what I'm doing. But I was going to the gym like every day, and when I say every day, um, it was okay, I'll do a cheeky like five-kilometre run on the treadmill and then I'll go and do a one-hour body attack class and um, doing that every day. And then Saturday mornings it was walk 40 minutes to the gym and then do three classes back-to-back and then walk to the cafe and meet Matt there afterwards and we'll go for – we'll drive home. So I was just working out at this insane level every day. And as far as I was concerned, I looked the best I'd ever looked I felt the best about myself I'd ever felt. I was, as far as I was concerned, the healthiest I've ever been. Yeah. Um, and this particular day, we'd just moved um, only a couple of months prior to uh, where we were living in the hills at the time. And I had heard a friend of ours was um, taking classes at the Good Life Gym across road. Um, and I said to a couple of friends, why don't we go um, and do the two classes, pump and attack class and we'll surprise him and we'll just show up in the front row kind of thing. And then we can go out for breakfast afterwards. So that was the plan. I went, I did my warm up first. I went and did the body attack class and we then start doing the pump class. And I get to the second track of the pump class, which is weighted squats. And I've got 25 kilos on my shoulders and I'm doing this squat track and I just blacked out. So I'm mid squat and I've got 25 kilo bar on the back of my shoulders and I've blacked out. And when the sound and vision came back, everything was warped and distorted and echoey and I felt really woozy. And I'm like, oh, God, I don't feel that great. Actually, no, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. Try and go back into doing the squats and I'm like, I'm not going to be fine. And the rational brain kicked in. I can remember myself thinking, you need to get this bar off the back of your shoulders. You've got two ways of doing this. One is that you drop it. And if you drop it, you'll probably hit your lower back. And You're not on the yourself. floor. Are you not? Not at this point. Floor, I'm, stand, so. I'm still half, I'm still in my squat pose. So you blacked out and stayed up right with the bar stayed on your shoulders. Oh, Correct. my God. Okay. Correct. And I, I just realised we've never had this conversation. Uh, no, 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 no. I've I had a, <laughs> I, no, I've, I've heard the abridged version, if you will. Yeah. So this go. is mind bending. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm in squat pose, weights. Um, on shoulders and it's like drop the bar you hit the back of your your lower back you'll injure yourself or you get this bar safely over your head and you just take a break so I managed to get this bar I don't know how over my head and did it properly like my friends were going we had no idea that anything was wrong because yeah that was my next question I'm like great so I'm having a stroke but my technique is good your technique is great it's an (laughs) True Aldo form, though. True Aldo Correct. form. If you're going to do something, let's just do it right. Do you know what I'm saying? Correct. 
correct. So anyway, so I've got this bar down and my friends are looking at me going, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. No, 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 I'm not fine. And I've got to get out of here. So I bolted out of the room and clearing people out of the way as I, as I went. And I just ran up to the reception desk and the girl at the reception desk saying to me, uh, I said, look, I've just, I've just done body attack. I've just started doing pump. I've blacked out. I feel really, really woozy. Um, is there somewhere that I can just sit down and like just have a lie down or, or something or have some Panadol, feel like I've got a bit of a headache? And she starts asking me all these questions like, you know, can you hold your arms out like this? And, you know, what's, uh, what's your birthday? Do what day it is today? And who's the prime minister? I'm like, I don't know. It's Australia. It was five years ago. Who was the prime minister? Nobody knew. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, um, she's asking me these questions. I'm like, I don't need to answer these questions. I just need, I need somewhere to lie down. I need some Panadol. And then no, I describe it. I describe it to a madness. Yes, she has. She? Yeah, she has. Um, I describe it as a Superman punch to the inside of your forehead. So if you imagine Superman just punches the inside of your forehead, that was the feeling I had. And it took me to the floor and I was nauseous. And I, my head was like the, the worst headache. I've heard you talk about migraines. This is, I thought maybe that's all it was. Um, and it was just the most excruciating thing. And I felt like I, I remember feeling like I can't get my head low to the ground enough. Mm-hmm. And I'm crawling around on the floor and I'm, you know, starting to be sick and everything. And she's like, um, okay, now I need to call you an ambulance. They've got much better painkillers than I can give you. And she took me out the back and she's called the ambulance and I can hear her on the phone. I remember her um, ambulance um, guy must have been saying, oh, you know, can you ask him this? Can you ask him that? She said, listen, I'm a trained paramedic. I know what I'm doing. I'm up to here. Keep up with me. And she took over. And I'm like, oh, my God. How often you get somebody at a reception desk that barely knows their own name and yet she <laughs> is a, you know, she's a paramedic. Wow. Like, here's my earth angel. Yeah. 100%. So, so she got me, next thing I know, I'm in an ambulance and I'm shivering cold. It was like a 36-degree day. And I don't forget, I'd just done like a, an, an hour and a bit class of, and started a pump yeah. class. And, yeah. Yeah. So I should be like boiling hot. But I was freezing cold and shivering and they've given me like five or six blankets and they've like, we've given you every blanket we've got. We can't warm you up. Um, my friend's called Matt, who's met me um, at uh, the RAH and we just had no idea what was going on. Um, my friends thought that I'd hit my head with the bar and maybe it was a concussion or something. Um, but they took me into, um, took me in to go and get checked out. Um, did some scans and an angiogram and stuff like that. And um, they said, you have bleeding on your brain. I'm like, what? Yeah, you have bleeding on your brain. And we don't know where it's coming from. So they did this, um, they did this cranial angiogram. They go through a um, an artery in your groin and they go up with a little tube and camera right up into your brain and take these photographs. And they found um, a... The aneurysm is kind of like if you imagine the artery and it's the main communicating artery between the left and right brains, so anything mm. to do with communication, Vinny, that's the section. Yeah. You know? Um, and so there's a wall in that artery that has blown out like a balloon or like a light bulb shape. And so if you imagine that you're filling the balloon, well, the weakest part of the balloon is the very top because that's yeah. where it gets stretched. So the blood's actually going through that artery, but it's going into that little bubble 
and it's pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it out. And things like hypertension, high blood pressure, um, they that will help it um, and it will burst and that's what happened. And so the bleeding happened between my brain and my skull, which is what they call a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, and, of course, there's only a small amount of space there. So the blood's rushing through there and there's excess blood that shouldn't be there and it's just causing all of this pressure, um, which is why my head was in such excruciating pain. Um, and so they had to they had to operate. And um, I'm in, the, in my hospital bed being told all of this and I'm like, yeah, okay, but when can I go back to work and when can I go back to the gym? And, like, Mate, you're going to have a little bit of time off. No, 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 no. I need to, look, I've got this kid I need to look after and I've got this I need to do for work and, and I, I can't not go to the gym because that's my life. And, um, and do you think I'm on my literally deathbed situation here. That's Yeah, but like you even mm. going into like, when am I going to go back to the gym? Well, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Do you think so like because you, you can still talk, you're hearing everything he's saying, you're, you're completely there. It's not like this is like stroked you out and you, you can't communicate. You're not, you know what I mean? So do you think your response of when kind of, was it just a nervous, anxious response or, or were you genuinely like, I've got to get out of here? Um, I think, I don't know. It, it would be really interesting for you to talk to Matt about that because we often say that we've had two very different experiences of the same trauma. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. for me, what I piece in my, what I can remember you know, I think it might have been two or three days and it's like, no, that happened in one day or that was actually five days or whatever. So my yeah. my understanding of that time was was is very mixed up. Um, and I'm sure that when I was speaking, I wasn't necessarily making a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I was just, I think I was in a position at that point where I was just obsessive about what I was doing. And like everything was, you know, a billion miles an hour or not at all. Um, and I had I had quite a stressful job um, at the point. And what I, I felt like I was getting more satisfaction out of going to the gym than I was out of my own, own work. So, you know, I substituted one for the other really. And then that became the thing that was my, my dedication and my commitment. I was fully yeah. into that zone. Um, so I think that that's where, where that came from was this thing of, um, I'm, I'm just a, a thousand percent. This is my life, and I need to, I need to commit to that a million percent or not. Oh my gosh! Okay. Oh my gosh! Okay, I have so many things. One, universe, heaven, whoever. Thank you for your Earth Angel. That's amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Number one takeaway. <laughs> Number two, what are the risks that perhaps you now know of this aneurysm, like the fact that it could just burst, I suppose, and cause a hemorrhage between your brain and skull and not have seemingly any other impact on speech, mm. cognitive behavior. What I, was, I, I was guess very, like, how does, very lucky. Yeah. Like that just is a extraordinary circumstance. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, I am in my understanding is a less than 5% category of people who have this kind of um, injury and walk away with a, with no significant or severe permanent or long-term damage. The only thing for me that I really notice is sometimes my, uh, my working memory, uh, particularly if I'm quite tired 
Um, I might trip over words or I can't find the right word to get out or, or whatever it might be. Um, so that's when I notice it the most. But most people, like the, the statistics are not great. Majority of people wouldn't even make it to the hospital. Um, so I was lucky that I got to the hospital. And then I was lucky that um, I was able to have the surgery and then not have a lot of people lose a part of their brain and lose major um, functions, bodily functions, speech function. Um, I couldn't imagine, like, everything I've done in my career is so much about communication mm. that if I was to have lost that ability, you know, that that would have been the worst thing in the world. Put me out of my misery if I can't communicate, you know. Um, yeah, so so I know that I'm in that that kind of category, which is really quite phenomenal. In terms of um, acknowledging the risk, a lot of people, my understanding is, and I certainly didn't, a lot of people don't know that they have an aneurysm. Yeah. They don't know that it's there. But there were two, um, they said to me, oh, you know, your blood pressure is really high. Um, do you have hypertension? I don't know. Um, do you go to, um, do you, when did you get last go to the doctor for a checkup? I don't know. I'm a male in my late thirties. I don't go to the doctor unless my arms already fallen off, <laughs> you know, so, um, <laughs> asking me these questions, I can't answer you. And, you know, I've gone back and I've actually looked, I was wearing my Apple watch and I've gone back and looked at the health data from the day that it happened. And my heart rate was over 200. Oh you know, God. for an hour and a half. And I go back and I, I can look back at the workouts I used to do. And I was literally working two and a bit hours with no break, no rest time, no recovery time for my heart, um, that my blood pressure, as fit and healthy as I thought I was and as great as oh, I thought I was. just off the charts, Blake. was off the charts. Oh it was ridiculous. Yeah. So that was the big, the big struggle when I was in hospital was, they couldn't get my blood pressure down and they couldn't get my temperature down. So I was, you know, freezing cold, but I wasn't allowed a sheet mm. because my body was too, it was too hot. Um, and yeah, it was, look, talk about turning points in your life. Um, it's going to sound like I'm going to say bad things about where I used to work, but um, you know, they said to me, oh, you've got bleeding on your brain. The first thing I said to Matt was like, without losing a, a second, I don't want to go back there. And he goes, where? And I said, I don't want to go back to school. I don't want to do it. Goes, well, you don't yeah. have to go back there right now. So I don't want to go back ever. Yeah. And so in my mind, I think I'd, you know, perhaps I'd thought about a really stressful, the biggest stress for me at that time was my work. And I was in a highly stressful situation. I'd piece those two things together. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was hell-bent. I had six months recovery at home. I was lucky that I didn't have to go to um, the brain injury recovery unit. Uh, I only went as an outpatient where initially they're like, you're probably going to be in hospital for, you know, a month or two and then you'll go to there for a month or two and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do any of that. And I was just lucky. They said that the quick response time from, um, you know, the, the woman at the gym and the fact that I was so active and, and so healthy in, in other ways really contributed to the fact that um, I didn't end up in a worse situation mm -hmm. um, than what I was already in. Um, I had my surgery. I um, had tests. They sent around to this um, rehab doctor and you had to do all these little tests, little cognitive tests. And 
I was fine doing the drawing one and I could do some of the words ones. And then she's like, okay, count backwards from 100 in lots of three. And I went, babe, I couldn't do that before the brain injury. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> not going to happen. I'm like, ah, oh, this is going to thing. It's going to get me committed. It's my my fear of numbers. Um, and, um, yeah, so I was lucky. I only had to go back in as a as an outpatient. and But I had six months recovering at home. And it was over that time that I rediscovered things like food um, that I hadn't been creative with in a long time. And I started reading um, and fell in love with books that I wish I had when I was younger. And I really started thinking about, look, what is what is the next thing? What's the things that nourish me and that um, give me give me the creativity that I'm, I'm longing for that I don't have in my current work? And um, and that sort of started a process for me of going, I need to look at some other ventures and um, and maybe this, you know, looking at principal roles and, and that kind of stuff, maybe that's really not for me and maybe I need to take some steps back, sidestep a little bit and recalibrate and, and reset and reinvent myself, you know, and, uh, and work out what that is. That's where I'm at. Yeah, so there we are. It's incredible. Like that journey in itself, and uh, we, we won't go into all the detail of that six months and what that recovery looks like I guess like it's not too major mm. like you said in your in your case which is great but for someone of your your nature and your spirit as we've already discussed like sitting still I imagine is not your ideal cup of tea either as you know as much as you don't want to be in a high stress situation but like you said to rediscover things like food and books and just immerse yourself in that that led you down your food blog Aldo in Cucina, mm. which is one of my favourite mouth-watering instas to follow. <laughs> just sign me up. Just tell me whenever I can come. I'll be there for dinner. <laughs> sure um, thing. Talk to us a little bit about, like, how not only the food journey but now how that and your love for books as well has taken you not mm. only from the blog but to your latest venture in which you've just written your first manuscript um, yes, let's talk I about have, that. I'm halfway through my final chapter, which I'm doing today. I'm so excited. <laughs> Such a good day to have this conversation. Excellent. Um, well, what, a, what a day to be pouring out all of these thoughts, you know what I mean, like and, and relaying yeah. them all back to yourself. So tell us about the food journey and the book journey. Yeah. Well, the food journey, I, I've always loved food and and cookbooks especially, Um it's yeah, mostly what's on that shelf is is food books. Um and um I was at home um doing my recovery, which and when I say recovery, like I'm talking, I couldn't really walk, I slept all the time. I had to learn to do things like that. That was the crazy thing. I was in the hospital and um mum and mum and Matt were both feeding me and the nurse said, Oh, if you don't if you don't let him do this himself, you're gonna be doing this for the rest of your life you actually have to let him feed himself. So they gave me a knife and fork and I literally looked at it and went, what do I do with this? Wow. And that's like, he's serious. I'm like, yeah, I don't know how to make these things work. And so then he sort of showed me the movements. I'm like, oh. So I was kind of relearning everything. And I remember every time I was relearning something, it was like loading data onto a computer. I could actually feel those parts of my brain firing that I was taking in this new info. And, and I, yeah, I, I was at home and watching a lot of television, got into Australia's 
um, Bake Off, Great Bake Off, whatever it is that was on see, Fox that I watched good, good, both good. seasons. Yeah. Matt comes home and it's like, oh, so today I've made 4,000 different kinds of bread rolls. <laughs> we Welcome to my bakery. <laughs> Welcome to the right. Aldo Bakehouse. That's right. And so um, I started getting to a position where I could start to do things for myself again. Yeah. And I had time. I think time is time is the thing that allows us to do the stuff we want to do and, and stops us from doing the things that we wish we could do because we don't have enough of it. And so I had this time and... Um, you know, I rewatched every episode of every Nigella series and I just started going, oh, I haven't really loved cooking for such a long time. Let's get back into that. And so that helped me to sort of pass the time and I rediscovered my love for that. And um, I met Nigella actually when she was here um, in Adelaide and um, I had this opportunity to thank her for being part of that recovery. And it was a beautiful, emotional moment with the lovely Nigella Lawson. It was an incredible anyway um and so that started the thing and I kind of knew that I was eventually going to go back to teaching full-time and I had to go back very part-time and then increase my load and blah 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 and I'm like yeah but I know that I don't I don't want to do this what I'm doing I don't want to do this deputy stuff anymore I need to find the other thing um and it just so happened that um the drama role came up at, at Wilderness and I went for that and it was so that was such an emotional day when I got offered that position um I was standing in Target at Newton and they've called me to offer me the job and I'm standing in the menswear section just crying my eyes out like I was so mm-hmm. elated to get this role because it was an opportunity to reset yeah and it sure. was going back into more into the classroom and more in the creative sphere that I had missed for such a long time um, in in my previous role. So, yeah, so the food stuff was kind of happening and people were like, oh, I was always putting stuff on Instagram and, oh, you should set it up. And what I wanted to do was um, I wanted to, to host long lunches. I wanted to do long Italian lunches and do that in people's homes or in my own home. Um, and it's something that I'm still toying with and trying to work out how is that going to how could that be part of my story now mm-hmm. um, and I've come back to that um, way of thinking about food but but it's just sharing story which is what we're doing here and what you're doing with the podcast it's I I had a wonderful chat with my principal um, this week and told her where I'm at like a completely candid conversation this is where I feel like I'm at in my career and I love what I do as a teacher, but these other burning things that I love. And she asked me, she said, oh, if, um, if, if it was one thing that you would say that you would do, that you would want to do, what is that thing? And I said, well, if I look at what's the single brushstroke for me, it's storytelling. And everything that I do is storytelling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even when it comes down to food, like there's a photograph and there's a story about how I came up with that or why I've made it or yeah. how it's inspired me or whatever. Yeah. If people come over for dinner, um, I will plan that dinner party. And it doesn't matter if it's like one other person is coming over for dinner. I am planning that meal three weeks in advance. Mm-hmm. I've got mm-hmm. every book off the shelf. I've gone, okay, but I can make it this way. And what's the story that I'm going to tell between, you know, the entree right through to the end of the dessert? Absolutely. There's a story in that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so recovery time, I'm cooking and I'm rediscovering food. Um, and then a, um, a wonderful little book came into my life. It was this book that's sitting right next to me. 
that one, um, nice. which inspired the film Love Simon. Love Simon. Yeah, uh, which I must have seen. I was trying to count the other day. I at least saw it five times at the cinema, maybe more. It's a beautiful um, film. Like it's a it's absolutely a gorgeous so film. Cool. Everybody should see it if you haven't. Or read the book. Or read yeah, the book. yeah. And Simon versus so I knew this book yeah. was coming. Yeah, and I knew the book was. I knew the film was coming out, and I'm like, oh wow, this is a this is a story like a love story, but it's about gay teenagers. Like this is pretty hard hitting. Um, so I got the book, and I think I devoured the book in a day and a half and mm-hmm. I wish it had taken longer um, <laughs> but I devoured that book and was just so obsessed with it and I hadn't actually read a book for pleasure I couldn't tell you how many years could not tell you how many, my my life is reading but it's reading kids work and reading you know uh, educational documents and I just done my just finished my master's at that point and it was all this academic reading yeah I'd never pick up a book just for fun and so I picked it up and I read it and I loved it. And like I said, I loved the film and still do. And then it's like, oh, well, there's this other book about this other young gay story. I will grab that as well. And then I discovered this whole world of young adult fiction. It was like I did not have these books when I was a kid, when I needed them. I've got them now and there's a lovely sense of nostalgia when I read them. But um, I... I don't know, I've lost count of how many books are on that shelf now that I've bought over the last couple of years and really intensely read them and I hate it when I don't have time to read them. And um, writing a book was always something I always thought, oh, I could write a book one day. Mm-hmm. And um, I, this is a lovely little circular narrative. I um, decided this year that I was going to write a book and I was going to write a book about the time that I moved to Canberra for uni. And, uh, yeah, here's the circular narrative. Here it is. Um, Here it is. And um, two wonderful um, authors, an Australian author called Holden Shepherd um, and an American author named Angelo Semelis, I've connected with them on Instagram and I love both of their books, um, Invisible Boys and The Dangerous Art of Blending In. So if you're looking for some reading, check those out. Um, and both of them have written from personal experience, but they've given their story to different characters, to new characters. And I was chatting to um, Angelo one day and he said, you know, his story was very much semi-autobiographical and very much came out of writing for therapy um, that he said, um, an author friend of his said, look, you've actually got the start of a book here out of your journals you need to write this book and if it's too painful for you to tell the story well then give the story to a new character to tell and let it become their story and so I toyed with this idea you know, I'd write this stuff and you know Phil Nathan and I got up to ridiculous stuff um, over the time that I lived there I'm like nobody's ever going to believe that these things happened and they did happen yeah um, and um, I'm like well I love reading young adult fiction I've got a chance here to write the book that I wish I had back then. Um, so write it. Absolutely. Just sit down and write it. And so I, I started to do that and um, and today I'm hoping I will finish the final chapter of the first draft and then I get to edit it and then see what happens with it after that. But, yeah, I- here we are. I'm so glad that you're making time for me today on what is a very important day in your writing career. Um, it's it's incredible to hear that, Aldo, and I love the fact that you're not only doing it for yourself 
you know, this creative catharsis of writing and creating and storytelling, which you do so beautifully, like you said, in every single way, and that's evident in everything that you touch. But you're also giving back to yourself, writing the book that you wish you had. Um, you know, we said it really early on in the conversation when we we're talking about sexuality, coming to terms with that and the time of it as far as society goes and, and how it wasn't necessarily as prevalent or as still as, as accepted um, as it is today. So I think that, like, you know, to do that in itself is such a, a wonderful thing. Yeah, thank you. It's been a lovely little trip down memory lane, but, um, you know, it's one of those things when you're devising any kind of work, if it's theatre or um, if it's writing, um, and you have source material that you're very close to. If you try to be too true to that source material, you stop the creativity. Yeah, so you absolutely. might as well write nonfiction. Um, but I wanted it to be a, a fictional story and to fit in that genre that I love reading and the kinds of stories that we're able to tell now. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and to be part of that, you know, hopefully have the opportunity to contribute to that. Um, and yeah, giving the giving the story to you know. Alex and Trick and Mark to tell, that's been fun, you know. So that's the first time people have heard the names of the characters. Maybe. Amazing, amazing. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll hear them much, much more. Um, yeah. Look, with everything that you have shared today, which is such a spectacular journey, and thank you for for sharing so much and being so vulnerable with, with a lot of it. And it's, this is, it's so funny because this is, you know, the beginning of your new journey with the book and many other things mm. that hopefully we'll be able to follow and, and share along with you in the future. When you look at everything, Aldo, what advice would you give today if you had to give advice? I don't know. Some people don't like giving advice, but if, or, or what would you say? Like, what, what are your takeaways from the journey? What are the lessons that you now live, live your life by? Oh, there's just so many. Um, but I I think it's, you know, that that Shakespearean quote of to thine own self be true. And I think when you when you allow yourself to understand yourself and, and be able to identify what your your skills and your strengths are um, and what, what brings you joy. I think you need to find joy in something every day. I hate doing anything that doesn't bring me joy. So I focus on the stuff that does. And I think when you can really invest in that, I think that would be my advice is, you know, if you if you have a passion, invest in that. If you, um, if you don't start something, you'll never finish it. And sometimes starting it and not finishing it is part of the journey too. I don't think you can be too hard on yourself um, for that. I could have started. No, I have started many times throughout probably the last 15 or so years, maybe longer, where I've started writing a play or I've got an idea for a story. Yeah, absolutely, we all have. I'll write a few chapters. Yeah, and it just and ends. It, and it, and it's it was the therapy you know, for the time. A hundred percent. Like I'll look at my notebooks yeah. and they're full of ideas. Like they're all half ideas or like there are some completed ideas, a hundred percent. And some days you yeah. go back to the one that is niggling you for years and years and years and one day just something breaks and it becomes something totally different. But you know what I mean? They're all seeds. They're all little seeds. Correct. I think I think the other part too, um, Vinny, is um, understanding your limits. Um, you know, there's things that I that I want to do now. I want to do more writing, and I want to do some stuff that involves food. And I've, I'm hatching a bit of a plan that can in, can actually combine both of those things of storytelling and creating with a food component. 
to that as well, which we can talk about another time. I got so excited. I ripped my headphones off. <laughs> that's good. Oh, my um, God. No, that's great. What I was going to say about um, about knowing and observing your limits, you cannot do everything at the same time. And I was very much in the lead up to my brain injury. And even in the time, I, I think sometimes I still struggle with that. You know, I've always wanted to do lots of different things. That's always been my biggest problem. Um, and I'll, I'll overcommit. Um, and I think when you overcommit, you you can only do those things that you've committed to to a certain percentage. You yeah, can't humanly give it everything. Um, and so where I'm, I'm at in, in my career is going, well, how can I fit in the other things and where can I make sacrifices? And, you know, would it, would it mean, you know, teaching part-time and then trying to invest in some of these other avenues and, um, and sort of things that I'm looking at doing. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I've never been a person who's been happy just doing one thing. I need to do multiple things, but I also need to know that, you know, there's, I've only got so much capacity, so much bandwidth. So I think that's, that's the other bit of advice I would give as well is just be kind to yourself while you're trying to achieve your dreams. Yeah, absolutely. Aldo, this has been such a privilege and a pleasure and just wonderful. I can't thank you enough for everything that you've shared today, your spirit, your story, um, your energy, not only with me but with my listeners too, and I hope to see you again. Uh, I can't wait to yeah. continue following the journey. Um, if you want to follow the journey at home, you should. You can catch him on Instagram and at Aldo's underscore story or if you want to follow that delicious food account, it's at Aldo in Cucina. That's C-U-C-I-N-A for all the non-Italians out there. Um, but before you go, I must ask you 10 very important questions. If you've listened to the show, and I know you have, you're familiar. Yes. This is the bit I've been dreading. <laughs> okay, come on. Come on. All right. Here we go. What is your favourite word? Fabulous. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. What is your least favourite word? No. A lot of, um, I love how many people say that because it's, it's true, isn't it? If you, if you tell me no, I will find a way to do it. Yeah. I'll wait. Yeah. 100%. Um, what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Confidence. What turns you off? Uh, what's the opposite of confidence? There's cockiness, but there's arrogance. also that sort of thing. Oh, God, yeah, absolutely arrogance. But also that thing of like not not being that inability to take a chance. That, yeah. That's the other side of it as well, you know. The confidence in being able to. Um, no, maybe I'm being maybe a, bit, a little bit mean. It's not really <laughs> no. insecurity either. But I don't know. It's. Hello? um you know, I, I love I I love it when people really have a go, and yeah. and it's you know maybe maybe the thing that turns me on not isn't so much the confidence maybe it's the vulnerability that's that Brené Brown kind of way of looking at it, I guess it's the source of everything, um, and I think if um, I, I look at the work that I I get kids to do on stage and when I see them walk off stage going oh my god I didn't think I was going to be able to do that yeah that's because yeah. you were vulnerable you put yeah. yourself in yeah. that position. Like you said, if you never way. start, you never finish. But if you never, Correct. never go, you never, never know. That's mm. right. That's right. What is your favourite curse word? <laughs> um, the C-bomb can get dropped every now and again, but usually just like in jest. Um, yeah. It's amazing just, yeah. how the tone of that word changes when it is used 
um, my best friend uses it as like a very beautiful, warm welcome. And he has done since high school, but to the point yeah. where it's actually like so loving. So every morning yeah. I'll be, we, we lived together for a period and we would just be greeted with that in the morning, like, good morning. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, And it just has a nice warm feeling and it, um, and it's funny how it can change when it's used in a jagged sense or in a very harsh yeah. sense. I like, um, I like keeping people on their toes with the curse words as well. Like when you go, <laughs> oh, fart, instead of saying, good. oh, fuck, oh, yeah. fart, and people are expecting <laughs> the other one or, um, oh, you're a pain in the arm or whatever it might be. Uh, but I can give you a really good one, probably the one that um, I relish with joy the most to say is fuckity ass. Fuckity ass. Yeah. I love it. I'm going to keep that one on the list. What, what sound or noise do you love? Um, laughter. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, other people chewing. <laughs> Can't cope with it. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? You're doing them. <laughs> yeah, having a stab at, at whatever I can. Yeah. But yeah, I think um, you know, talk about confidence and vulnerability. That's the stuff that's that's held me back from really achieving in the areas I've wanted to. So I've had a, a little stab at this and a little stab at that, but um I don't know that I've ever been vulnerable or courageous enough to really make it my profession. And here I am in my 40s going, yeah, you know, I want to do this stuff and it's time to start taking a few of those risks and putting myself out there. What profession would you not like to do? Lawyer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there we are. It's come full circle. It's the best. Yeah. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Hey, queen. Yes, <laughs> fierce. Love it. Aldo Longobardi, it has been the best. You are a it delight. It was fun. <laughs> I hope you had fun. I was going to say, like, I hope that I was did. too like Thank you so much for your time today. I will see you Thank very you. soon. Thanks, Vinny. It's been great. To continue the conversation, suggest a topic, a guest, or if you'd like to share your success strategies and journey, then connect with me and the podcast on Instagram at the real Vince Fusco. See you there.